It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Um, I've brought you back some gifts. Ah, you're very good. I mean, it's basically oh, Swedish dairy milk. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, Swedish dairy Swedish milk is, dairy is, milk. is nicer than most dairy milks. That's very kind. I'm actually this... not sure if it's mint chocolate because I can't make out the... Do you, do you reckon not, it's mint? Not chocolate is what it says, actually, here. Not chocolate. Not chocolate. Not chocolate. But there's some yes. mint leaves on it, so I guess there's mint. Um, That's hazelnut. Kind. That's hazelnut leaves, isn't it? Are they hazelnut and from the, mint? From the plant on which the... The important bit is that it's chocolate and that will do. You're very kind. There you are, folks. No problem. You're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King and I'm joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Hello. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello there. How are you keeping? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. You rested um, after your week off? Yes, I feel very rested actually. <laughs> back, to the, back to a very busy news week. Indeed, yeah. God, it has been yeah. pretty chaotic. There's, there's, there's weeks where nothing happens and then there's days where weeks happen. Is sort of yes. to an, is an adapted mm-hmm. slogan to take on this. Feels thing, like yeah. that, all right. Yeah, and I suppose in terms of what we've been covering on the podcast this week, the running order changed many times in the last sort of 48 hours because uh, stories have been breaking and developing. Uh, we're going to begin with a breaking news story uh, just as we were coming to record tonight, and this is that the Guard the Cold Case Unit is to conduct a full review of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier in West Cork in 1996. Uh, were you surprised to hear this, Richard? No, uh, it's been called for by a lot of people. Um, I was actually speaking this evening with uh, a mem- former member of the Serious Crime Review team, uh, which is the Garda unit which will be conducting this. Um, the motto of that unit is, the adopted, is, is, is to the living we owe respect, to the dead we owe the truth. And that is really the message of what they are going to try and do. They feel that they owe uh, a huge deal of respect to the family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, but they need to get to the truth of what happens, which more than 25 years on, we're still no closer to finding definitively in the Irish courts what happened there. Um, effectively, it's going to be a lengthy exercise. There's been so many, there's been so much focus on this for so many years. There's been so many whispers and people online will have heard so many rumours over the years about this. This is all about finding the facts and trying to figure out once and for all what definitively happened to Sophie Toscan de Blanc. It'll be very interesting to see in people's minds because so much of the story over time has almost become, and this is a very grim way to think of it, but it's, it's sort of become theatre because there's been so many, you know, um, very high profile trials and all the media coverage that comes out of that. There's been the two documentary series for mm-hmm. TV. There's been the podcast series that I suppose for a lot of people, it, is, it, it, it feels like one of those true crime podcasts. It feels like an entire work of fiction. Like it feels like such a detached thing when for some people it's so thick on the ground. And I, I kind of wonder whether this far removed when so much of the story is now told through secondhand uh, documentary projects and everything else, how difficult it will be to actually get to the kernels of the truth that are out there or to try and turn up something that hasn't shown up in the last quarter of a century. 
Yeah, it is. And it's one of the challenges, especially when we know that the Garda investigation was criticised from the get-go in terms of how it was handled from the outset. Uh, what impact did that have on the evidence? And when they go to review it, what exactly is it they're reviewing? Is that evidence conclusive? Um, so to delve further into this, we are joined now by the Southern correspondent for the Irish Independent, Ralph Regal. And Ralph is somebody who has been covering this case for more than 20 years based in Cork. Uh, hi, Ralph. Thank you so much for joining the group chat. Hey, Zara. Honoured to be here. So, Ralph, we want to begin by asking you to talk us through some of your earliest memories of covering this particular case. You've been on it now since the 90s. Uh, what was your first recollection? Do you remember when you heard about it first? Yeah, I was I was in Cork in the newsroom at uh, the Christmas of, of 1996 when the call came through that there had been a body discovered in West Cork. Now, at the time, uh, we had a, the, the examiner had a West Cork correspondent called Eddie Cassidy, and Eddie was dealing with the story, and uh, there were a lot. Initially, there was a lot of talk that it could have been a new age traveller, that it could have been a road traffic accident victim. But very quickly, it emerged that it had been a woman who had met a violent death, and then very quickly after that, then we learned that she was French, and that of course she was very well connected within the whole French film industry. And it emerged, I think, within a couple of hours after that, then that she was the uh, the wife of of uh, Daniel Toscan de Plantier, who was one of the most one of the best known people within the French film industry, and also one of the most influential, and who would have had contacts right across the entire French film industry industry and politics, including being quite friendly with uh, the French president Jacques Chirac. Ralph, this has obviously taken on a life of its own over recent years. Obviously, it's now 25 years plus now since Sophie was, was murdered. We've had podcasts, we've had multiple documentaries and books about this. Has that focus, that international focus, has that made, has that done anything to, to bring up new evidence in this? Obviously, now that we have this decision to, to have the serious crime review team examine this, has there been any impact of all of that extra scrutiny on that? Or has that hindered things in a way that you have, you know, a million people around the world who have their own theories about this and who can get in the way if they want to? Yeah, I think we undoubtedly have this cold case review on the basis of the focus that's been on the case, particularly since the 25th anniversary, which was last year. And there were two major documentaries produced within the last 12 months. You would have had uh, Jim Sheridan's production for uh, Sky, and then you would have also had a Netflix production. And both of those had a significant impact. And there was a number of people, there was a number of contacts with the Gardaí on the basis of those programmes. And certainly it increased the pressure um, on the Gardaí to sanction a cold case review. And of course, it's worth remembering that both the, the, the family of Sophie Tosca and de Plantier had been in favour of a cold case review. And Ian Bailey, um, the 64-year-old former freelance journalist, poet, and the man who has been the focus of multiple extradition attempts by the French, he personally wrote to the Justice Minister, to Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, and to the Taoiseach last year, arguing that he wanted to see a cold case review. So while I think the news today is significant, it really shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. From a nuts and bolts perspective, Ralph, what does it actually entail? Because one would have thought that given this has been running now for so long and there's been so much international attention, the Netflix series, the, the Now TV series, the, the Audible podcast, one would have thought that pretty much everything that was to be reviewed has been reviewed at this point. So, so what is left to look at now? Yeah, it has. And I mean, there have been two reviews of the original Garda case file. And there was also an internal review uh, conducted by then Assistant Commissioner Ray McAndrew. And that 
review was ordered after the dramatic evidence of Marie Farrell, who, I mean, people might remember in 2003, there was a very, very high profile um, defamation action taken by Ian Bailey against eight Irish and British newspapers. And the star witness of that defamation hearing before Cork Circuit Civil Court was Marie Farrell. And very dramatically, within the space of two years, she recanted her evidence and said that she had only made those statements on the basis of duress that she'd been put under by the Gardaí. And the McAndrew report has never been released. So this, in essence, is almost what you could call the fourth review of the original Garda case file. And the original Garda case file went to the DPP. It was sent back for clarification. And then in 2000, 2001, the Director of Public Prosecutions, having considered it at quite length, at, at, for, for quite some time, decided that there was no basis for any further action and for no charges. And Ralph, we know that the Gardaí were criticised for how they conducted the investigation, particularly in the early stages after this murder. You might just remind us of some of the detail of that. Yeah, it, it was it was a confluence of events really that proved problematical for many reasons. Uh, first of all, there was a delay in getting a pathologist. So Sophie's body actually stayed outdoors for two successive evenings. And what that meant was that body temperature readings couldn't be taken. There were issues to do with the maintenance of the scene. Uh, there have been issues to do with um, the preservation of evidence. There has been issues. I mean, th there was a complaint made by Mr. Bailey uh, to the Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission um, as part of that review. And it was found that there were various issues to do with, uh, the, you know, the maintenance of evidence. There was an issue to do with logbooks and um, how some of the the actual notes in respect of the case were, were, were maintained. So there were a lot of issues. But really what it fell down to was the fact that Gardy were it was just one of those cases where Gardy they had no eyewitness. They had no major forensic evidence to work with. Of course, these were the days before extensive CCTV footage and mobile phone uh, um, coverage. So they had none of that information on which to, to rely. And it was just, they never got the break or that little piece of good luck that so many investigations hinge on. And hence they've never had that one crucial piece of information um, to lead them to a, to a charge or to, to a, ca a case being brought before a judge. Ralph, what is the, the atmosphere around West Cork? around this murder now, 25 years on. For so many people, if you speak to people in West Cork, it's almost like one of the seminal moments of their lives. That's something, the shock, and this is something which people should, should remember, the shock that this murder caused at the time was like almost nothing we'd ever seen in this country before, particularly in such a small and, you know, close-knit area. How are people feeling about it now? And I suppose, how is Pierre-Louis feeling about this now? Obviously, he owns the, the, the house in question here now. Has he responded to it at this point? Yeah, so Pierre-Louis Baudet-Vigno, he owns um, the house that Sophie had purchased and she had described as a dream home. And of course, it, she was fleeing from that property and from um, an intruder that she apparently met. And she was beaten to death within sight of that property. So his position has always been that a cold case review, anything that would result in new evidence being examined that might lead to that one crucial piece of information that could change things in terms of a prosecution in Ireland that the family were in favour of. But he's also been very, very strong in the fact that, of course, the French mounted their own prosecution uh, in 2019. And in that in that case, uh, in a Paris court in May of 2019, uh, Ian Bailey, he was tried in absentia 
and he was convicted by a French court. Now, Mr. Bailey has always said that it was a show trial, that it was a travesty of justice, and that he was convicted ever before the the trial was was staged in France. And he's he is in favour of a cold case review here in Ireland because his position has been that a cold case review will finally exonerate him and show that he had nothing to do with this crime, as he has always said since uh, December of, of, of 1996. And of course, Ralph, the tragic reality of all this is, despite you know all the documentaries, the podcasts, all of the hype that has, has surrounded this case for Sophie Toscan de Plante's family, they still have not seen justice. And at this point, is there anything to indicate that there are other leads for the Gardaí? I mean, Ian Bailey has always been the central uh, suspect in this case. Does opening this and, and effectively reviewing evidence that arguably could be deemed inconclusive, given that we know the, the mistakes that were made in the early stages of that investigation, is there any reason to believe that there would be any further developments in this case over the coming months? The one thing that covering this case for, for almost 25 years has taught me is that you don't make predictions because it, it has always surprised and there have always been twists and turns in the case. I mean, I would have thought after the, the libel hearing in 2003 that the end of the case would have been in a couple of years' time. And here we are almost 20 years after that libel hearing and there are still developments in the case. I think what's going to be very interesting is that some of the new information and the new contacts that the Guardi have received how those contacts will change some of the original information that was in the Garda file. I mean, the Garda are going to go back and look at all the original witnesses. They're going to look at all the original statements. And crucially, they're also going to look at timelines. And from what my sources are telling me, the timelines are going to be the crucial element of this. Of course, they will also look at some of the forensic evidence and see can recent developments in, say, DNA technology and things like that, can those tests offer the possibility of a breakthrough in giving them that one crucial piece of information that might actually lead to a successful prosecution. Ralph Regal, Southern Correspondent with the Irish Independent. Thank you so much for joining us on the group chat. So look, I suppose Ralph is saying their uh, timelines are going to be crucial in terms of this review of the case and also sort of recent uh, developments when it comes to DNA testing as well, Richard, something that he has pointed to. Uh, just to take a few lines from uh, Ian Bailey's solicitor, Frank Bushmere's statement, he's saying that uh, Ian Bailey has welcomed uh, this review. He says uh, that it is no doubt the family of Sophie Toscan de Plante will also welcome the review. Uh, Frank, ba Frank Bushmere says Ian Bailey has fought such a lengthy battle to seek a review and he will cooperate with the review to the best of his ability, adding that the review also confirms the unreliability of the murder conviction in France. Yeah, and I mean, as, as, as Ralph was saying there, this is something which Frank Buttermer and um, Ian Bailey have both been calling for for a long mm. time. We'll actually bring in one point of view on this, and this is from speaking to Gardaí in Bandon Garda Station, which is one of the units which actually now handles this, is that the focus of what has actually happened over the last number of years with the, the podcast and the books and the documentary is that they do get calls all of the time now from people who might have listened to a podcast and just want to hear their theory put to Gardaí, which obviously doesn't really help anyone. So some people just degree. like speculatively going, did, did you think about this? And then, and effectively then tying up Garda hours in asking them to reanimate old theories. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. People or just people, which are people, off the, a lot of off the wall stuff, which isn't even connected and they tie it into global conspiracies and stuff like that. And that really is a waste of time, but this is something which there is still a family grieving at this. Mm. Sophie Toscan de Plantier's parents have come over uh, almost every year mm. um, to that farmhouse outside Skull. They weren't able to do it for the last couple of years due mm. to mm. poor health and COVID-19. Their time is running out to see justice. Yeah. Um, Pierre-Louis, who of course has been basically in the vanguard of pushing for justice for, for his mum, mm. 
he again he wants to see this dealt with and dealt with properly and it just feels like sometimes there is all this chaff and stuff that gets in the way of really what the core of this is which is a, a woman who was brutally murdered and a family which has been left grieving many many years uh, left in the dark on this mm. absolutely millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So... Just when we thought maybe Dublin Airport was back on its feet or the front door of the nation was no longer banging off its hinges, Richard Chambers, to quote you from recent weeks. I've, I've had that quote read back to me on multiple trips to the airport. I was in. Front door in rag moment. order. Yeah. I apologise for nothing. I tell the truth about that airport. The airport is in a bad way. It's gotten worse in the last. Uh, well, you saw you saw it firsthand in the last week, sir. I'm going to be honest. I had a very pleasant experience at Dublin Airport. So I feel a bit bad saying but that. On the way back, I didn't realise that there were the problems back, that yeah. you saw on the way back. Yeah, so on the way out, I'm going to be honest, got to the airport at 8.30, was through security after checking on a bag and everything by 10 past nine. Got that was to do, a weekday, wasn't Got it? to do a bit of browsing through the loop, actually thoroughly enjoyed it on a Tuesday. Yeah. Things kind of kicked off afterwards. I will say coming back, I was absolutely horrified to see hundreds literally hundreds of suitcases abandoned in baggage claim in the arrivals hall. I sent you guys a picture. I mean, mm. it was, you know, and I spoke to one staffer who obviously uh, off the record <laughs> did say, didn't know who they were talking to probably in France, did say to me, yeah, this happens all the time. This place is a beep show. So wow. I was like, okay. Insert your insert own adjective to describe I was like, okay. And I said, but why are they here? Like, and he said, well, people just left them there. And I said, there's no way people just walked off and mm. left all these. And he said, well, actually, so what's happened is a lot of flights have come in uh, and the bags have taken several hours to appear on the, on the belt. So hours. people just leave and they have to be posted out to them. But I mean, I don't know how they're going to post them all out. Some of them have been there for several days. There, there are, and there's a few instances. And it's a big, big problem. And it's again, it links into something we're going to talk about a little bit later on, which is COVID-19. Mm. But there's been a big problem with baggage handling, which is obviously not in DAA, to their defence, mm. will say that this has nothing to do with them. This is third-party baggage handlers and individual airlines who handle everyone's bags. But it's been a, across Europe, not just the Dublin airport, there has been an absolute shed load by multiples of bags which have gone missing and mm. people are waiting more than two weeks to get them back and they're ringing and they're tearing their hair and there's mm. priceless valuables yeah. in some of these bags which have gone missing. That's one element of the disaster which has befallen Dublin Airport which is not enjoying a good well, summer. If, if those are bags from people who presumably already live in Ireland because there's no way like you'd have nothing with you otherwise. So I presume a tourist uh, has no option but to hang around the airport for like four or five or six hours waiting for their baggage to get off the Well, a lot carousel. of them aren't because the bags are but just... But if, they, but if they've got nowhere else to go, so you presume that a lot of the bags that are abandoned are from Irish people who at least have wardrobes at home to go to. 
But oh like no, for, I checked for, the tags on a couple of them. Like they were they were international <sighs> bags that were left like, there. Whatever yeah. about the you know the, our little Stonehenge thing outside College Green and the new like ridiculous little uh, table that we've got there. That can't be a great introduction to your tourism experience <laughs> at the Spar College Green. But like the, what what an awful introduction like to Ireland as a tourist then to like, banging off its hinges as Richard Chambers would say. Banging off its hinges. Is, is that why we're bringing in the army? The army. The army. Well, this can, I, is... can I say before you go on to this, right? This sounds like a WhatsApp rumour that you would try to dispel, but it's actually not a WhatsApp rumour. It's rumor. very Gibbo Ricey, yeah, she yeah. cheeks and all that from yeah. back in the day. <laughs> but no, the army has been put on standby uh, to come in and help the situation at Dublin Airport. Uh, we are told that they will only be deployed if there's a significant deterioration on an already bad situation. Uh, and if there are more and more COVID-related work absences because obviously the security staff mm. are very upfront. They're very up close and personal. In the previous Omicron spike, one in four security staff in Dublin Airport was off due to COVID-19. Mm. So the army has been asked to put people into immediate training. What they'll be doing is effectively, they won't be doing the security pat-down or scanning. They will. Which is important because the whole argument about a month ago when this was first raised was that the army were incapable of doing that. And if that was the pinch point, I think that's where they want to go. And it would take five or six weeks to train them up. So shorter training period if you have them on the fence or checking vehicles going to airside and all that sort of stuff. But the people who aren't happy about this are the army people who feel that they are, once again, basically the who you're going to call option for <laughs> any situation that may arise. They feel that they're cheap labour, that they're free labour, that they're being asked to bail out poor management at a semi-state mm. company. Mm. And basically at a time when they should be well-earned holidays mm. after, you know, all of the work they've done during COVID-19 and, and everything. And yeah. so but even all their work COVID. in the Mediterranean, yeah. all that sort of stuff, any deployments abroad, a time for them to go away with their holidays, with their families, they're being asked to go and mind the airport because, you know... It, things aren't working well there. I was at the airport there earlier on today. Um, Aer Lingus has had a bad run of it as well recently. 12 flights cancelled on Wednesday, 13 cancelled over the weekend, more on Thursday mm. due to these COVID staff shortages. A couple of people who I met at the airport today, starting with this Cork man and two women from Holland. I was, I was on the phone for three hours this morning on hold. Eventually got through to someone and they hung up on me. Um, but I, I decided to come to the airport and they, they've now rebooked me. So I'm going from Cork, so I'm actually from Cork. So I'm going back down the road to Cork now. Um, but I was in Dublin anyway, so. We are from Holland. Yeah, and you were here for the cancellation as well. Uh, yeah. We uh, had booked a flight at two o'clock in the afternoon, but it was, uh, yeah, we don't know, but we were rebooked on a flight at 6.15, but that flight is canceled. And so we were stuck a little bit over here. And then we met this guy. helpful cork man, yeah. <laughs> and he told us I travel as well to Amsterdam and uh, from Cork. So we started, okay, can we? Now he's stuck with two ladies. So well, at least you get to see Cork now as well, like, you know, yeah. So, there's, there's benefits to these things, yeah. So it was very short notice and I'm absolutely starving, nearly fainting now because I've been queuing for three and a half hours and came straight from the bus and left Belfast at half eight in the morning so surprised to be honest that I didn't get you know a text message or an email saying that the flight is cancelled. So you just arrived here and you were just told when you got here that it was cancelled? I just saw on the board it was cancelled when I was about to check in. So um, real anger there amongst the army personnel they feel that this isn't a national emergency that they shouldn't be used in this way that this is something which has been a political you know, something which has been put forward mm. by any politician who wants a few headlines mm. and now it's just coming because people want to be seen to be doing something. Yeah. Because the DAA um, obviously said this wouldn't help. And now they're like, well, this is a contingency measure. We need, 
all the help we can get if things go properly, properly, properly yeah. mm. bad. But there's a lot of a lot of frustration but, there. And even the workers at the airport themselves aren't happy with this. But if they do get yeah. deployed in this case, won't it be not just because of the, the lingering staff stuff and the fact that they laid off so many people in 2020 and are still only struggling to get them back? Won't it be because also there is lots of COVID around and lots of staff are missing? And that's one of those mm-hmm. things where mm. it's not down to anyone's mismanagement per se. It's not down to someone being sloppy or someone trying to cut too many corners and now discovering that they've, they've cut the, the thing too thinly. Mm. It's a case of societally... There's a virus going around. Lots of people are off work. And, and there's only so much of that you can ever control. Sure. Yeah, yes, comments, but comments, yeah. you, the, the problem is that there's still a shortage of staff there. Yeah. Before so, that happens, yeah. If you have a shortage of staff, yeah. and a load of them then go off sick with COVID-19. Touche. I do, problem. and I do feel really sorry for the staff who are working in Dublin Airport at the moment, by the way, because the people who are actually coming in every day and go to work are doing a great job. You know, and you feel so sorry for them because they're obviously dealing with people complaining. They have a rough ride of it. People really are giving them dogs. Do, like they actually there. do, in fairness. And you can almost sort of see it in some of their faces. They're just worn from the whole situation and they're still, you know, smiling and, you know, helping mm. and go this way. And, and like, I, in fairness, I think huge credit is due and it's, it's nice to give them a mention now to the staff within Dublin Airport who are, are doing their best, but God love them. The airport is... Um, uh, like it's been cleaner it has been cleaner it has been more efficient like it's probably just not really it's not at its peak but do you know what though I flew through Copenhagen coming back as well and Copenhagen had its own difficulties as well Yeah. and mm. I think it's important to say that like okay Dublin's not in great shape at the moment uh, you know going through security in Copenhagen took ages of the day as well you know there were massive queues at check-in desks for bag drop-off you know, you had a situation where you were trying to drop off a suitcase and they were closing the desk for an hour. I suppose in hindsight, looking back, they may have been closing that desk as a traffic calming measure to stop people going through security. Mm. But then the problem then was you, you had people a really stressed. Then at bag- baggage flights. drop, yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 it's far from ideal. And like, it's, I think Amsterdam Schiffall had been something similar as yeah. well. Yep. There's been massive crowds there. Yeah. We saw before in Brussels that uh, on arrival side, the passport checks are crazy because they are also dealing with a lot of bottlenecks and instead of there being a, a steady throughput of people, they now have them all coming in fits and starts. And so sometimes there's no queue and sometimes you're there for half an hour. So it's not ideal anywhere. But I suppose that the fact that, admittedly with the point taken that a lot of it is, is staff recruitment stuff, the fact that COVID is doing the rounds and is doing mm-hmm. the rounds much more now than it was a month ago is definitely going to be a contributor. And if it continues to rise at the rate that it is, well, it's, we're absolutely getting into territory where they're going to have to deploy the defence forces because there are simply so many COVID cases right now that it's impossible to think that the personnel won't be needed. Yeah. It, does, it kind of brings us on to another point that we were talking about earlier in the week, obviously, this idea of um, a potential new legislation around mandatory mask wearing. Because mm. just in relation to the airport, I suppose, I was taken aback. Like, people aren't really wearing masks in the airport. It's obviously that you don't have to now. And even on flights, people aren't really wearing masks. I wonder, is there an argument to be made around that at this point, of if that's affecting travel or international, you know, movement of people, that if you have to wear a mask on public transport, that maybe, you know, would planes be factored into all of that? Or is that uh, something that... So they possibly would. I think the rule, internationally speaking, is that you still have to wear a mask on the flight if one or other, either your point of entry or point of departure, if one or other of those still requires it to be worn in crowded settings so mm. that the, the, the plane kind of inherits the rule. So if Ireland were to go back to mandatory mask wearing and transport, then it would it would kick in in those circumstances. Um, whether it will in Ireland or not, um, it was interesting that as soon as the, the rumour got out on Tuesday morning that the cabinet was looking at this, mm. that there was a very concerted effort from people involved in government to immediately try and downplay or dampen this as a contingency thing. We're not doing it. We're not even thinking about doing it. We're just preparing the ground in case we have to do it because the emergency powers that used to exist that allowed the government to force you to wear masks expired at the end of March. There is no legal basis on which you could force someone to do anything to do with COVID anymore. And so if the need arises, 
they need to have a law drafted that they can bring to the Dáil and Janet and say, here, lads, we need to bring back masks. Can you uh, approve this enabling bill for us, please? And they're insistent that that's all it is and that it will take so long to draft, it won't even be ready before the summer recess, let alone debated or passed. So if it is going to happen, it would have to be at least by the September when the Dáil comes back, which is three months away. And so it's hard to, to imagine you could do that much forward planning. So it's but the fact that they're doing it would suggest that they clearly don't, they haven't closed the door entirely. You mm. Like you wouldn't, if, if you thought, okay, this is what living with COVID looks like, mm. you wouldn't go away and draft another emergency bill. Yeah. I don't think. Well, it could be some sort of autumn winter planning, but we will watch this space. Um, speaking of autumn winter planning, <laughs> the HSC is going to have to find a new person to run the health service in the winter because uh, Paul Reid has announced that he's leaving yet another high-profile departure from uh, the the health sphere. Uh, Tony Hulin's actually finishing up this week, by the way. He's wrapping it's up Friday, yeah. Friday, his role yeah. as the Chief Medical Officer this week. So uh, we wish him well. Um, Paul Reid, stepping down in December, first appointed in June of 2019, says he's leaving uh, with a heavy heart, made the decision uh, to uh, move on and spend more time with his family and a belief that the HSE was entering a new phase and that the appointment of a new leader was now timely. Well, by God, they're entering a new phase. <laughs> I mean, I that's putting it mildly, is it not? I mean, I just pulled my chair in closer. I know, yeah. Five takes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Un unleash the takes. Well, I have a few takes myself, to be honest. Look. The only person who knows why he has decided to call time on the HSE chief executive gig is Paul Reid himself. Mm -hmm. He's the only one who knows why he's done that. Yeah. It has been suggested to me by people that if you look at his in-tray and you have Navin, you have the CAMS situation, you have Slauncher Care, you have the waiting list, which of course were made horrible by the pandemic, the recruitment crisis, potential mm. industrial action amongst mm. non-consultant hospital doctors, the winter trolley crisis, the summer trolley Summer crisis, trolley crisis. Ideal, like yeah. record yeah. number of people on trolleys waiting for a bed mm. in the month of June earlier on this week. There is a feeling, and again, the only person who can tell us this is Paul Reid. You, have, you haven't even put in the sixth wave of the pandemic there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We could have put in a million. Is it things. six? I think we've lost count. Yeah, well, but there's a feeling that things added up. Yeah. And that if you were, <clears throat> from the outside looking in, if you were Paul Reid, um, was now a good time to go. Do you mean added up with a sense of like external <clears throat> pressures or people being like, well, hang on, how come all of these things are arising? Or internally, because he was like, I only have 18 months officially left on the clock and I can't be doing with this. I'm exhausted. A lot of stuff there, like, do you know yeah, what I mean? There's a lot. That's an intro. Like, you hear this whenever you, you appoint a new manager in football, that there's a big intray there of, of things to be done. <laughs> yeah. He came back from holiday with a big intray of things to do. <laughs> he did. Um, like, again, he is a man who lives in Carrick and Shannon. This is all widely reported at this stage. And the commute from Dublin from Carrick and Shannon is a lengthy one. Yeah. Um, he has family who are living abroad. He would obviously like to see them more. Um, it is worth saying, Zara, I suppose, that there's no secret we made at this point that he does not enjoy perhaps the closest of working relationships with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Yeah, I would say that there is, you know, a healthy, you know, robust exchange of conversations over time between those those individuals. I which mean, means, which is an analogy for he pulled them up in front of people. He's had blazing rows. They've had blazing rows. He has rolled they've his eyes at suggestions Stephen yes. Donnelly has made. And they don't get on particularly well. The Department of Health and the HSE that <clears throat> in general have a kind of a spicy relationship between them. They work together, prickly. but it's prickly enough. I mean, you know, it was well documented uh, that, you know, he himself and Tony Hulan had locked horns a couple of times uh, throughout the pandemic. Look, I think Paul Reid, um, uh, you know, as a character kind of came into this in June of 2019. Obviously, within six months or whatever, eight months of being in this job, you know, you're into kind of crisis mode, uh, dealing with the pandemic. Uh, you know, I think 
much of his time in the HC will be dominated by that, rolling out the vaccine rollout. I guess if you're Paul Reid, you're probably looking at this and thinking, I'd rather go now on a high note somewhat or, or as close to a high note as you're going to get before, as you mentioned, mm. you have to really face into the realities of the list of things that are actually wrong there. I mean, it's hard to imagine a time when the health service was in... Well, I mean, I feel like we say this all the time about the health service in such dire straits, but I mean, it but really no, like, is in a very it's bad really place true right now. now. Like, you know, you said the words in, in your list of things in his intray, a summer trolley crisis. Like, we've been, yeah. we've been looking at figures this week of there being like six, 700 people in trolleys in emergency departments, which is the sort of thing that you usually get at the worst end of the winter spike. We're talking about this in the last week of June. It's mm. not peak respiratory disease system. There's no winter flu doing the rounds at the minute. So the idea that things are as bad right now is clearly in, in, in pretty rag order. Um, the thing about Navin Hospital uh, and, and the relationship mm. between Stephen, and again, I, I suspect the Paul Reed has just basically decided I have done five years worth of work in three years. Don't forget the cyber attack, by the way, which, which if the pandemic, oh my didn't, if the pandemic didn't exist, forget about the cyber <laughs> if the pandemic didn't so exist, much. the cyber attack would have been like the sort of crisis that would basically take years off you in your <clears> work. Sending the army to fix that. <laughs> they did. Yeah, they well, sent it out to the city to do it as well, By the way, sure. has a great relationship with the defence forces and will be the first man to thank them and oh. praise them for the work they've the done. staff next. That'll be yeah. his next gig. Yeah. Um, but the, the Navin situation, like it, it's an interesting backdrop. I, I don't think it's the germane thing at all. But it's a fascinating backdrop that there has been this very, you know, all those blazing rows between Stephen Donnelly and uh, Paul Reid are at least all behind closed doors or in sort of certain fora. You don't often get situations where a minister is rushing out a statement to say, hang on, no, the government has not decided to shut down the emergency department in Navin yet. And then have Paul Reid going on national radio and go, yeah, we're doing it anyway. It's the right thing I, to do. Can I say, I'm going to say something about this because we've spoken about this off the record, like amongst ourselves about this. Like Stephen Donnelly's office hosted a briefing for the media mm -hmm. about Navin Hospital being changed to a level two. Yes. It was hosted on a computer within the Department of Health. I was on the briefing myself. And, you know, that was facilitated by Stephen Donnelly's mm -hmm. office, that briefing. And that conversation took place in the presence of people who work for Stephen Donnelly. And everything that was said about changing Navin to level two was all said within earshot and, and you know, mm -hmm. on, in front of people within the Department of Health. So if they wanted on that particular day when that uh, technical briefing, as they call it, to clarify anything before uh, Colin Henry went out afterwards and spoke to mm -hmm. the media about it, they had ample opportunity to like do that. Everything about it had their stamp of approval. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yes, as far as all the journalists on that call that day were concerned, absolutely. There was and, no reason to believe that there wasn't. And the following day, there was a cabinet meeting and Helen McEntee is from Meath and concerns were raised about the ability of Drogheda and Blanchardstown to incorporate Navin's workload. And suddenly, Stephen Donnelly said, hold on there now, we haven't done it yet. Which is an interesting side debate as to whether ultimately you can ever fix health if you do get bogged down in some clientelism. Like mm -hmm. no one ever wants to be responsible for like telling people in a mid-sized regional town, sorry lads, we're downgrading your services. But it would, it probably would be, by most experts' reasoning, to the betterment of the whole country's health service because you could redeploy now and then to do more laboratory stuff. It could help work through all those inpatient and outpatient waiting lists that we're hearing so much about. Like the way to get rid of Paul Reed's intray uh, is is to do all this stuff to perform all these services, and Navin's supposed to be able to do that if you close the ED. So then, why is the whole thing being held hostage? Because there's one minister, albeit from my own county, I, look, at, I'd love if it was great there too, uh, standing there going, can't close that.
Gavin and, and, and the, the whole parish thing. pump. Gavin and the parish pump. Someday um, I will speak in my own native accent. You won't know it, I. <laughs> Just want to touch on another thing that's obviously a big challenge for Stephen Donnelly this week as well. And at the time of recording, this hasn't been resolved. It is um, it is the pay for those who have long COVID. So frontline workers who uh, contracted long COVID while working uh, on the frontline, many of them on COVID wards, mainly a lot of people who would have worked in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, March, April 2020, where they went to work when there were no vaccines. Obviously, there was very little PPE even at that yeah, time for them. Be, yeah. You know, people were really sort of, you know, answering Ireland's call and, go, and going and working on the wards. Uh, those individuals now finding themselves in a situation where they're on a cliff edge their payment is due to be cut off by Friday so the 1st of July and they will be back on just normal sick leave so this special uh, pay with leave are, is now going to be wrapping up effectively for people who have long COVID so they find themselves in a situation where they describe it as being cut off and kicked in the teeth by the government Stephen Donnelly promised the INMO conference back in May that this would not happen uh, you know he was very clear in saying you will not find yourself on a cliff edge we will look after these people there's around 180 people mm. affected by this yeah, uh, we we're, spoke we're to now 27 hours away from that cliff edge and yeah. we Yet. Now, by the time we, hopefully by the time this goes out, there might be a resolution. But uh, what I want to play for you is a clip of uh, a nurse who works in one of the uh, major acute hospitals in this country. She worked on a COVID ward. She's 29 now, was 27 when she got COVID back in April of 2020 and has been unable to return to work. Uh, she wants to remain anonymous. Uh, we're calling her Maraid. But we want to take a listen to what her experience has been like and how she feels about how the government has handled this. If the pandemic happened again, no, I would not participate because where's my thanks for that like they're going to uh, my life is just as I said it's so small I'm living a shadow of the life I lived before like I'm really only surviving instead of living and now they're going to stop my pay and um, so it's a real kind of kick in just in the teeth after everything that I've already done like I've worked five years in the healthcare service in the public sector and I'm, we're just being left behind and everyone else is moving on. So thank you to Marie for talking to us today. I suppose, look, it's just, this is the reality of what people are dealing with. And she's at a point now where she doesn't know financially she's going to be able to survive basically after yeah. this Friday. So yeah. uh, hopefully Off there will the be a resolution yeah. found yeah. around that. Um, Gavin, who is Cassidy Hutchinson and why is what she said this uh, week so important? The, the new darling of the Democrats in Washington because she apparently is prepared to spill some tea uh, about the White House on January the 6th and that whole insurrection in ways that no one else would. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson is an aide to Mark Meadows who was at the time of Trump's defeat and the subsequent events was the White House Chief of Staff. So she had a real fly-in-the-wall um, approach and mm. um, access to all of the White House meltdown around the election results and its fallout and then what happened on January the 6th. And there was a couple of interesting bits in the testimony that she gave this week to the January 6th committee, which is investigating all of this. The, like, there's the nice like showbiz anecdote stuff like Trump throwing a plate against a wall and uh, a cleaner having to take ketchup off it because he was so aggrieved at um, one of his own ministers basically admitting that there was no fraud at all. Um, but there's one thing which was particularly uh, worrisome about what she said, um, which is to do with the the rally that Donald Trump organised, which then turned into uh, the riot and the mob and the storming of the Capitol building. Because the defence that the Democrat or the Republicans and those loyal to Trump have put up about the whole thing was that, yes, Donald Trump addressed a crowd, but he addressed a crowd that were going down to organise a legitimate protest. He wasn't mm. inciting them to go in and, and try to uphold some sort of armed insurrection. And what she has said completely and probably fatally undermines that because Trump allegedly was complaining about how few people were inside the formalised rally area and was com complaining about how that would look on TV, that it didn't look as packed as it could have been. And why wouldn't more people come into the area? And it was explained to him explicitly, the reason why they can't come into our formal security area 
is because they're all carrying weaponry of some sort and they will not pass the security checks, the airport-style checks, mm. on the way into that, that fenced-off area. And Trump's reply explicitly was, I don't care, I'm not the one that they'll be threatening, I don't care if they're carrying weapons because they're not going to be threatening me, personally, Donald Trump. So stand down the security machinery and let them in. And having said that, and that now being on the record, does very materially suggest that Donald Trump knew the intentions of the people that were there in the crowd and then spoke in such a way as to effectively give them what felt like an instruction to go and not only protest at the Capitol building, but to storm it itself. And that, that, like, that's a very sinister turn on the whole thing. And there's a lot of other interesting gossip as well about how, um, for example, on that evening, um, Trump's own cabinet was considering invoking a little-known procedure to basically remove him from the job, to declare him unfit for office because of his behaviour on that day. And the only way in which they were encouraged not to do that was that Trump agreed to issue a, vi a video the following day accepting the result of the election that he didn't accept and agreeing a peaceful turnover of power. Um, it's fascinating stuff, and I, like we, we, we could nearly spend hours talking about the fallout of it, but I do, I do think it's just worth reflecting on the fact that the most powerful man in the world knew that he was inciting a violent and armed mob to go down and stop his own defeat from being certified. And we've gotten blasé about how wild it's been for the last couple of years. We should reflect on just how crazy that statement is. Absolutely. A final question on that, Richard. Do you think that completely changes his chances of re-election? It's interesting because there's a couple of questions. First of all, does it ruin his chances of becoming the president once again? There has been a shift in the public perception mm -hmm. in the United States around this. The majority of people do think that he should face criminal charges. Ron DeSantis is a name you're going to hear plenty of mm. of next one. He's the governor of Florida, a mini Trump. Uh, some are saying now he's probably got a more of a chance now of being the Republican nominee for president than Donald Trump himself. The other thing is, though, will there be criminal charges about this? Big ask. Justice mm. Department don't normally do anything like this. It's a big leap to go from all this sort of stuff, which comes in a committee which is designed to hear all the bad stuff without hearing a rebuttal. Mm. So... Big, big questions about yeah. that. Lots of questions to remain answered. We are out of time for this week. Thank you so much uh, to political correspondent thank Gavin Riley. Thank you for the chat. And new correspondent Richard Chambers. Thanks, Zara. And uh, thank you to you guys. I want to say, by the way, really enjoyed those voice notes last week, Richard. They were great. Nice to hear like the voice Absolutely. of the people who listen to Group the podcast. Group chat faithful. Honestly, Always deliver. Lovely to have the voice of the people who listen to the podcast on the podcast. And we're definitely going to do that again. So if there's something you are really annoyed about and you want to talk about it and you want us to address it, uh, you can contact any of us on social media and let us know. And we'd love to hear your voices on the podcast. As I say, thanks for joining the group chat and we'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.